the show where we go behind the curtain with stars of the Culture Wars. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and today we're joined by Augusto Zimmerman. Welcome, Augusto, to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. I've been waiting to interview you for ages, and I'm absolutely thrilled. So welcome to Curtain Call. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, we actually first encountered each other on The Good Source, the Not Q&A on a Thursday night, which we've already had some great political discussions. But to introduce you to our guests, I have to read this because your accomplishments are so vast that I can't possibly re re remember them all. So you are Professor and Head of Law at Sheraton Institute of Higher Education in Western Australia, Professor mm -hmm. of Law at the University of Notre Dame, President of the Western Australian Legal Theory Association, former Law Reform Commissioner appointed by none other than Christian Porter. And uh, you're also the Chair and Professor of Constitutional Law at Murdoch University. And in addition to all of that, you obviously have held senior positions in the Liberal Party of Western Australia up until the Kirkup disaster, which uh, Kirkup is in danger of becoming synonymous with a political catastrophe. Uh, so my question to you is, what led to you being involved in politics and this culture war? Because you've obviously been here for quite some time engaged in these conversations. How did you start? Well, uh, I was approached by some of my friends who were very heavily engaged in, in the political process. I have some friends who are members of parliament. And they just requested uh, my assistance, my legal opinions on some uh, different matters. And as a result of this, uh, I also uh, end up being invited to uh, join the, the Liberal Party. And uh, I eventually became the Senate Vice President in one of the divisions of the Liberal Party in Western Australia. And that my whole goal was uh, uh, to be able to um, explain constitutional law matters and matters that are uh, concerning uh, my area of law in particular, and, and trying, as a result, to be salt and light and, and do a substantial difference. Uh, I think it was, I felt that was my moral duty as a citizen to provide this contribution. Well, uh, that's fabulous. And uh, let us, I've got a whole stack of questions because I've been, I said I've been waiting to interview you, so I'll put you through your paces, but um, let us start with the clickbait of today, which is going to be Christian Porter. Now, full mm -hmm. disclosure, anybody who follows my work on Good Source or The Spectator knows that I am and have not been a fan of Christian Porter for quite some time. My disagreements are to do with what he writes into law. I think that his um, policies and some of his acts are the most dangerous we've seen in more than a decade. Uh, but that's beside the point. When What I want to talk about today is the witch hunt we've seen in the media 
in the past few months regarding Christian Porter. Does Porter, from a legal standpoint, have a case against the press and what they did and how they treated him with this uh, allegation of sexual conduct? Well, first of all, I must say that I sympathize with your uh, opinion regarding his uh, performance as, a, as an attorney general. I'm also totally unimpressed with him, especially with he, what he did to our friend uh, David Pello when he invited those two speakers to uh, on a tour, to go on a tour here in Western Australia from Canada. Uh, he ended up, uh, David, receiving this appalling bill from the Victorian police of more than $70,000. I went to talk to Christian Porter seeking uh, his assistance and his help because I thought this was a violation of, uh, of the, even the Constitution, the implied freedom of political communication. And Christian Porter did absolutely nothing. So I'm also very unimpressed with what he does as an attorney general. Uh, regarding this matter that we referred to, I must say that uh, if he thinks that uh, this will be easy for him to obtain a victory uh, in uh, his lawsuit, I have a different opinion because the article, uh, for instance, doesn't mention his name. He's uh, decided to come in and say that uh, the article was about him. So the cabinet minister that they referred to in the article was uh, him. And after that, uh, uh, another uh, threshold for defamation law is that the person has to be identified by the general public. I have written an article in the Epoch Times to say that Australian people are not so entirely politicized. Even here in Western Australia, it's possible that Christian Porter can walk on the streets and not even be identified, neither as a Christian Porter as a person, nor as even a, an attorney general in this country. So um, it's not an easy, uh, necessarily uh, easy um, a lawsuit for him. And if he loses, he'll be in, in such a big trouble because, of course, uh, the ABC will be founded by taxpayers, which is quite outrageous, and he'll have to find his own uh, source of uh, financial assistance in order to um, continue uh, in, the, in this uh, case until the final decision is made by by the federal judge, who, who by the way, uh, is a person who uh, was rejected by him when she uh, volunteered or applied to be potentially another high court judge. Uh, he was a person as attorney general who had the final say in these matters ultimately, and he rejected her um, application for this uh, promotion. Well, look, I promise we'll get back to Christian Porter's laws later. I have a few questions of, of that account because I feel like I've been shouting to myself in a padded room regarding Christian Porter's legislation. So mm -hmm. I, I'm thrilled to find someone who thinks similarly to that. Uh, but before we get there, just while we're on this whole uh, Me Too, witch burn, burning style trials that we've seen our, our politics descend into, we had the March for Justice, particularly through Sydney in a, a couple of weeks ago. They went past my house. I have no interest in them. My question to you is, do you think that the organisers and the people behind things like March for Justice really care about making structural changes to, to change the way Canberra behaves around women? Or are they using the market 
victimhood narrative as a shortcut to political power? I have no uh, illusions about these people. As a commissioner, when I interacted with the same people who were behind the organization of the event, I, my impression of them was that they were definitely pushing for an agenda. And they have caused so much damage to the legal system that it begs belief. For instance, uh, as a result of their lobby, uh, it's uh, the owners of the proof in some uh, uh, areas, including rape, uh, can be inverted. And some people, as a result of that, have been the recipients of terrible false accusations. Cardinal Pell is a good example, by the way. And uh, the, he ended up uh, even serving jail. And now we know that uh, there's a very, very, very high chance that he has done absolutely nothing. This is terrible because it makes me highly suspicious that this uh, powerful feminist lobby is totally undermining the rule of law, the legal system, and the idea of equality before the law. One of the most dreadful areas that the feminist lobby has totally undermined is the family law system, uh, where you have now parental alienation being uh, so common in, in this country, and we, women as well being affected as a result. It's just a tragedy of mammoth proportions. And the main culprits of the destruction and undermining of the rule of law in this country are the very ones, those people who organized this uh, march for injustice, I don't call march for justice, because these people are not into the idea of equality before the law, the rule of law prevailing in all circumstances, but they want to actually create a gender war that can further divide the population in this country. They are into the business of dividing in order to conquer. And that's the old uh, Roman ancient strategy that the elites always apply against the people, turning husbands against wives, wives against husbands, children against parents, parents against children, blacks against whites, whites against blacks. That's the speciality. And that's all ultimately to divide people in order to facilitate the power and control of the ruling elites in this country. Well, exactly. I mean, that really is the soul of collectivism, where political powers in both the socialists, the Marxists, the communist movements, it doesn't really matter which type of collectivism, they divide population into different victimhood groups and then make them feel like the only way that these now victims, even if they aren't really victims, but they see themselves to be victims, they have to seek revenge on the whole system by overthrowing it. And in doing so, when they overthrow their systems in order to gain authority and autonomy back in the world again, what they do is overthrow all their protections that the political system affords them. And that is how collectivism enters the world as a dictatorship and a supreme authorities because they convince people through anger and irrational infighting to remove their constitutional protections. Absolutely, and, and, and in the process undermining the, the basic rights and freedoms that we have uh, inherited from our forefathers. Uh, we had uh, in the past a appreciation for uh, the idea that the government is under the law and that we have individual rights to, to preserve. But um, if the population becomes um, fragmented as a result even of these uh, so-called 
pandemic, where people are afraid to interact amongst themselves, that facilitates the um, rise of a very totalitarian government. Why is that so? That's because the intermediate groups between the state and the individual are being completely eroded and undermined as a result of the lack of sociability. Our fellow citizens are now treating one another as um, deadly uh, carriers of a disease. And that is a second uh, sinister strategy. The first is the idea of dividing into groups. But the further extension of this is now turning people afraid of one another. So we cannot really even talk to people these days without people feeling afraid that we can potentially transmit a deadly disease to the person, which is a sinister plan that is being carried by the globalists, the ruling elites, to destroy the, the um, connections and tiers of relationship that we have in our society. Something that uh, a lot of men might not be aware of, and, you know, I me, mean, I hate talking about the gender card, but what this Me Too movement has done in this uh, crucible of social politics is that women like me have been negatively affected in the workplace. So when I first entered yeah. the workplace, we were riding on the coattails of my mother who was, you know, uh, she got into the workforce by sheer brute and merit and these women earned their places and they earned the respect of the workforce and the workforce was turning around. Women were just being treated like any other individual. But now young women are seen as a threat. We're either a quota and so our work is questioned because of our gender or men are afraid to work with us or be alone with us because they're terrified that we're going to make some accusation even though it's only the tiniest, tiniest minority of crazy activists who behave that way. And so we end up with no jobs. We end up with no career, no mentors, um, and it's it's actually disadvantaging the majority of women who want nothing to do with this complete victimhood ideology. Uh, absolutely, and um, I must say that I also feel afraid of uh, interacting with some of uh, my work uh, uh, mates here because of these um, uh, false accusations that are. Uh, uh, so much prevalent in our society. As a, as a professor, I used to be very careful about uh, interacting with students um, in, a, in a place that there were no, no witness around. I, I, I feel that um, what we have created is in, undoubtedly a culture where people feel really afraid to be able to interact with the opposite gender because they are under the risk of perhaps being accused of, uh, of sexual harassment or something of this nature. And once the accusation is made, because, as you say, uh, the damage caused to the court system and to the laws that have been created more recently that are very detrimental to the presumption of innocence, a person who is completely innocent can become a victim of such accusation, losing his job, losing his reputation. And it's something that... Um, uh, it's caused by this uh, fabrication of this uh, sexist, by the sexist ideology that men are inevitably predators, potential uh, sexual harassers. And uh, women are taught to be always very afraid of interacting with the opposite gender. It's a total tragedy. And, uh, and 
it creates a culture of fear and a culture of intimidation as a result. Well, just to lighten the mood, I'll give you an example. Uh, yes, women are definitely have to fend off men in the workplace. There is no question. But here's how I dealt with it. I was coming up, this is a little aside joke, I was coming up in the lift on my way to work and uh, I had it used to be a very stressful job and I would have three cups of coffee on a little tray just for myself to get me through the first few hours of the morning. And I was in the lift with this uh, older gentleman and uh, he just decided to put his hand on my arm for no reason. So I gave him a stern look, walked out, and I knew that he was the bank manager that was coming to see me to approve all of his requests that day. So all I did was hand the coffee to my aid, turn around, introduce myself, and then I got the best banking deal out of that man because he couldn't say a word. And so I thought that was probably a better social punishment than the rubbish that the Me Too movement goes on with. He certainly Absolutely. learned his lesson and he learned it the hard way. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, and that is the main problem, uh, is, the, is the idea that uh, the person who is uh, close to you and talking to you is a person who can potentially... Uh, undermine your life, destroy your life. So uh, it is uh, a scary reality where people are quite afraid of talking to one another to be able to develop ideas uh, and to work together with. Um, then, of course, uh, uh, it's the, the idea that the state is the ultimate uh, protector and provider. Some people definitely have decided in this country to be with the state and even married with the state. Of course, you have uh, uh, the no-fault divorce and people who make a decision to get rid of their spouses and leave at the expense of the government as the ultimate provider. They, What they are creating here in this country is the fear of relationships, that people are afraid of talking to one another, to relate to one another, even now uh, the threat, the so-called threat of the virus but then they think the state is the ultimate benevolent provider that can save them from a deadly virus and can provide them, even if it is coming the money from the person who has been under attack and, and having his life destroyed or her life destroyed. As you know, for instance, there are so many parents now who being alienated from the pet, their children, they're the same. They don't see the kids, but have to reward financially the person who has uh, destroyed his or her life as a result in the process, of course. Well, I think this is a result of the fact that we have infantilized our entire population. So instead of adults having adult relationships and uh, dealing with problems between themselves, they're asking the state to intervene for, on their behalf, and that is not a great way to go about it. My old boss had the best approach. He said, you guys can shag whoever you like in the company. I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. Hook up, whatever. But if you don't, if you can't do your jobs as professionals when you come to work, you will both be sacked. And we didn't have problems because we were the onus was on you. Take your own risks and to be an individual and to be an adult and to present yourself at work uh, as you should. And I think that's a, a far better way of solving these problems than asking the state to come and uh, weigh in on these issues as a third party. But and not to get bogged down in that, I want to talk about freedom because you've written a lot about freedom. And I think it has come as a shock to a lot of Australians that the freedoms that they thought they had were actually assumed freedoms or implied freedoms rather than enshrined freedom. And uh, I think this is probably because our ancestors never thought that they would have to protect freedom 
particularly of speech, uh, because they never suspected that we would be so reckless with our liberties. Is that a fair assessment? It is a fair assessment, but um, on the other hand, uh, and I have written even on the subject, there is no legal system or legal institutional design, even uh, coming from uh, the primary law of the land, that's uh, the Australian Constitution, that can save us from uh, ultimately uh, a condition of oppression and tyranny if the people do not have an appreciation for their individual rights and freedoms. Uh, I, as I have explained in my, in my thesis, my PhD thesis, the rule of law is as much a legal, political, institutional design as it is a culture of legality and respect for the fundamental rights and freedoms that uh, originally were considered to be even inalienable of the individual. That's why the American founding fathers would say that the right to liberty and to property, they are not state-given. So even if you created now a situation of uh, empowering judges by, by means of a view of rights that, uh, uh, and then think that as a result you would get these protections, there is a good chance that, first of all, because of the people not really having an appreciation, enough appreciation for uh, the right to freedom, the judge could actually use that as an instrument of um, perhaps potential undermining of fundamental rights, as we see in America with the Supreme Court of the United States, not necessarily uh, using the Bill of Rights as it was intended by the drafter of the document. So ultimately, the only way to protect our rights and freedoms, our rule of law, and our ideas of constitutional government is to have a population that has, has a, have a sense of dignity and, the, and have a sense that they actually have to be independent and self-determined in their actions, not really controlled by an external agency, namely uh, the, the authorities that rule over us. Well, 90% of the success of a political system is not a legal structure, it's the spirit yeah. of people involved in it. And the only reason the American Republic survived where other republics failed immediately was because of the idea of the American dream and what was taught to children to continue to hope. It's not because their structure is safe, because it's not. And, yeah. uh, and we have, Australia has one of the gifts of one of the strongest legal protections for people. But again, it's all based upon trust between the people who hold power. So, for example, if our Governor General doesn't have the guts to get rid of a dictatorial Prime Minister, then we don't mm. have our constitutional protections. Uh, but what I we'll talk about America just quickly before we get into that whole thing. Do you think it's time for Australia to adopt some of America's concepts of enshrining freedom of speech into law so it's no longer assumed but actually a right, considering well, the way law is moving in this country? Uh, look, in many ways, uh, I'm not uh, so much a fan or a supporter of constitutional monarchy. We have to keep it because the risk of changing it is too dangerous at the moment. So I'm a monarchist by default because I just don't feel that um, it's possible for us to make the most substantial change in our constitutional framework. Had but I known that, I would have come on here and fought you on constitutional monarchy, but I didn't know that. So another time, Augusto. <laughs> yes. 
But look, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is that there's not enough checks and balances in Australia. The judges are part of the same ruling elite that um, also politi polit politicians in this country are part of. So they are basically coming from the same uh, ruling group. Uh, and pol politicians appoint judges. The judges are not appointed or chosen necessarily by merit because they have to be appointed by the government of the day. And then after that, uh, in theory, they become more independent to exercise their power, hopefully upholding the, by upholding the rule of law. But, you know, in many ways, the parliamentary system can lead to the problem that England faced that eventually led to the, that short uh, interregnum, if I can say, between the, uh, the two existing uh, monarchical periods. That was the period of the Commonwealth in England, when Oliver Cromwell had to storm the parliament and say, and said to those parliamentarians that they should go away because they haven't become an entrenched oligarchy. So what happens in this country, perhaps, is the repeat of history where the parliamentarians have become an entrenched oligarchy. Uh, they are no longer just representing the people, but they are now trying to control the people and to adopt measures that are utterly authoritarian. That's because we don't have the proper mechanisms and checks and balances to prevent this concentration of power and the transformation, if I can use the word, of a parliamentary democracy into an entrenched oligarchy. I would argue that on paper we have the correct checks and balances because mm. I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but the constitutional monarchy, one of the brilliant questions that it answered was how to divide power, to deny certain power to other people. And so the motivation behind power is that the monarchy can only safeguard democracy, can only give power back to people at an election. Um, and yeah. the government general has the same, has the same responsibility. But the problem is, the in Australia, the tyranny of the press and after what they did to the Governor-General regarding Gough Whitlam's dismissal, is that they have terrified people out of their responsibility of office. And so what should be a check and balance has become corrupted by personal fear about the power that they hold and the responsibility they hold. And we're not teaching individuals to trust the system enough and to understand that they may have to sacrifice themselves in order to protect the nation and our constitution. Yes, I, I, I agree with that point entirely. But the America model is based on a more rigid separation of powers so that the president can be directly elected by the people. That can actually help in many ways. For instance, when you have this problem with the parliament becoming uh, a mafia, then you can actually have an outsider who can actually be chosen directly by the population. And the ministers in America, they are not coming from parliament. They are chosen because they are experts in the field, not necessarily having to be professional politicians to hold the portfolio. Quite the contrary, as you know, the rigid separation of powers makes the, uh, the member of the executive never uh, connected with the parliament. So in order to be a secretary of state in America, you have to not be a parliamentarian rather than the other way around. 
I think this can actually be good because if there is a president belonging to the Republican Party and the parliament in America called Congress that happens to be controlled by the Democratic Party, at least you can have a veto, a presidential veto. And, you know, as a liberal, a classical liberal, I like the fact that uh, this can lead to lack of legislation in the process because the president can go and veto everything the Congress does to produce. And that, therefore, we can have more, as a result of this uh, mechanism, more checks and balances and less government as a result. Well, in fairness, the Crown does have to approve Parliament's uh, yeah. laws. And they do have the ability to say, no, you guys are insane. Um, yeah. You can't approve that. Uh, but, I mean, in America, definitely they've shown us the system's not perfect because now they've got a puppet prime uh, puppet president who has no idea where he is. And he's and they're passing draconian mandates left, right and centre and they're changing the way elections are run so that they can almost ensure them. Like, it's definitely not a perfect system either and that's what your point, I think, was earlier, that politics is very difficult to get right because it essentially relies on trust. And once you get people in any position of power colluding, you lose that trust and the people lose their freedom. But I want to go on because we could talk all day about that and, I, and I'd love to talk to you about that later on. Um, but free speech has come to the fore lately because it is in danger of being privatised in the digital age. And in 2021, the only true uh, global public forum is, of course, the internet and in that realm of social media. Now, my argument's always been that we already have, particularly in American law where their servers are ha housed, we already have the correct legal constraints to control uh, and to protect free speech online. We have antitrust, we have um, the, the Good Samaritan clauses inside um, uh, uh, Section 230 immunity, and we've also got anti-monopoly legislation. So that should be enough. But my point would be, um, are politicians deliberately allowing private companies to control the freedom of speech online in order to manipulate the political conversation and to control it. I think that that, that is a good indication uh, of this uh, being a reality. And I can tell you that one of the scariest things that I have ever uh, uh, witnessed in this country is the Prime Minister demanding Facebook to be exercising more of this control I remember uh, when we had the terrible tragedy in Christchurch, uh, the thing that he did was uh, that scared me is to be um, saying that the fault was of the media and the social media in particular that uh, should exercise more control. So what's happening now is that the media is actually, the social media in particular, is doing what the government is indeed requesting. We have a president, oh, sorry, Talk about, about thinking about America, perhaps, but that we have a prime minister in this country that absolutely abhors free speech, uh, and he claims to be a Christian. But when that person's Israel Falou made a comment that was uh, controversial in a certain sense for those who are not believers, but so what? In a free society, you have the right to have ideas and express opinions. And the best ideas should prevail in the marketplace of ideas by means of a robust interaction with other actors in the political realm. But rather than doing that, he censored Israel Falou. His initial opinion was that the rugby league of Australia had the right to censor 
the rugby player because what he said, according to Morris, was insensitive. And he also says that uh, uh, free speech doesn't give you a job, that, the, that he's concerned about jobs rather than free speech. That is such a lack of wisdom because you know that uh, free speech is what triggers progress and development and even creativity and inventions in the West. The West is prosperous as a result of free speech, but perhaps he is not uh, learned in history enough to understand this point. I actually uh, wrote extensively on the Israel Flower case because online uh, free speech is a pet of mine because I come from the digital world. It's one of the things that I, I know inside out. And with Israel Flower, the one thing that bothered me is nobody else commented on the fact that it was not actually an issue of religious discrimination. It was an issue of corporate overreach into the private forum. And so yes. what a lot of, uh, a lot of um, commentators and politicians don't understand that in the digital realm, uh, businesses have been trying to control what people say in what would be considered a private quarter. So although it might have been said on Instagram, if that's your personal Instagram, that's like being down the pub. That's a personal space. If you go and type it on your company's Instagram, well, that's like being inside your office building. And the problem is that these uh, politicians, they think that social media begins at their news feed and ends at their Facebook page. They don't have a clue how these work. Their knowledge comes from lobbyists. Um, and activists, and neither of those two have the best interests of the people at heart. And so with Israel Falau, fair work was going to rule in favour of him, but with the new legislation that Christian Porter has written, Israel Falau would lose that because he'd be if they could prove that um, the the football company would lose money from their sponsorship deal, well, that would be fair ground to dismiss him for speaking privately in his own room. So I think we're making it worse because governments and politicians like to control speech and they do not want to help enshrine freedom of speech either online or, or in the general realm. That's a total aside. Sorry about that. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, if you have a, an attorney general who is totally unable to draft a religious tolerance bill that is a decent one, and then we expect the attorney general to be doing other things. I mean, they can't even repeal Section 18C. Uh, that tells me of the level of incompetence. Uh, unfortunately, we are very poorly served in this country with politicians who are totally unable to uphold the rule of law and to fight for freedoms and rights that uh, have gradually been uh, taken away by them, for instance. But what we have to say here, and I believe this is quite important, is that um, Free speech is for those who are disadvantaged. It's for the population who wants to uh, be engaged in the political process. If you live in a real democracy, people should have the same right of speech as anybody else, including the political elite. If parliamentarians can express their ideas in parliament with freedom, we who elected them in a democracy should then have the same right to manifest our opinions. The implied freedom of political communication is something that, in my opinion, makes perfect sense because without free speech, there is no um, possibility for the proper exercise of your democratic rights as a result. Well, let's talk for a moment about the late, great Bill Leake, who was all but hounded to his grave by 18C. Did Australia make a mistake when we began to weaponize victimhood and offence in law? 
Absolutely, we did. And what happened to Bulik was appalling. Uh, he was uh, falsely accused of being racist just because he uh, draw, drew a very important cartoon raising a very important matter, which is uh, child abuse in a certain community. And he had this concern and this um, passion for justice and for making sure that these children would receive a proper treatment, especially by their parents. And so it was a call for uh, mercy and compassion. So we had this lady who is not even an Aborigine, but properly identifies herself as such, that she was actually living in Germany when she lodged the complaint. The problem is that the Human Rights Commission accepts this sort of crappy uh, complaints and do not really dismiss this as absurd and frivolous accusation. Bulik, as a result, had to go through a terrible ordeal. And uh, there is no doubt, and Andrew Bolt even raised this uh, point, that all the pressure that he had to face as a result of this frivolous uh, accusation litigation uh, ultimately led to his death because he couldn't resist and cope well with the problem. He had already a health condition and eventually he passed away as a result. So that's the consequence of laws that not only take away everything you have, property or your freedom, but can ultimately, in the case of Bill Lake, even shorten your life substantially as a result of all the trauma and the, the stress involved in these uh, litigation matters. Well, it is, it is a, basically a prison for your mind, which the government creates in order to control you, and it's not very nice. No. Um, my main criticism of Christian Porter, as we've discussed and we're going to go into now, is the creation of a religious discrimination bill, which I've been writing about for a long time, uh, often to the anger of my own side of politics. But what I'm going to um, put here is from one of my pieces. Uh, it's that the religious freedom legislation is basically 18C for religious offence that invites lawyers to, to um, judge the validity of religion and religious speech, not just for believers, but for also for unbelievers. And I just think it's mad to bring religions that have been bickering with each other and offended by each other's very existence into a court of war in Australia in what could only be surely a mad and endless cycle of litigation. Uh, absolutely. And um, you know it's, uh, that in Victoria, for instance, they have a, a Religious Tolerance Act that is used as an instrument of intolerance and bigotry. So my main concern about this um, bill is that it can ultimately generate um, a sort of uh, blasphemy law by stealth, or even Sharia law by stealth, or a prime minister who, as you know, have not so, he, has a, he has no appreciation for free speech. He made a statement uh, in front of... Uh, uh, leaders of the Islamic community promising that they would be the recipient of this sort of protection. Uh, according to him, religious people should not be uh, under attack or criticized for their beliefs. Well, the more intolerant and bigoted the religious person is, the, the more the person deserves to be criticized. I consider a certain religion to be dreadful, and I think I have the right to say so, because it is ultimately a political discussion. 
normally we don't care so much about, for instance, uh, Muslims doing a mosque or Christians doing a church, but if they try to um, discuss some issues that are of a moral consideration that have an impact on human rights, I have the right to uh, be robustly uh, commenting and perhaps uh, robustly criticizing these uh, religious values and ideas. Religion, uh, normally it's not just about uh, what you do on a Sunday in a church or on a Friday in a mosque or whatever. It's actually more than that. It's about um, your values, your worldview. And if we have secular speech of a political nature being protected by the implied freedom of political communication, we should extend the implied freedom of political communication to religious uh, discourse that has political uh, implications as well. Well, there's actually two important issues here, uh, crucially, in our system. The first is that you never invite uh, religions or institutions to have political or legal supremacy over the individual in a system, a democratic system like Australia. It doesn't matter how much you like your religion, you have to ensure that the individual is at liberty to, to speak freely about any institution because we saw what the world looks like um, when religions and institutions own it and it's not good. We moved away from that for a reason. The second is that if we are going to continue to import people and cultures from all over the world and we expect everyone to live together inside this system of law, then we have to be able to speak freely and criticise and, yes, definitely offend each other about what is and is not acceptable inside this nation of Australia. So we have to be able to turn around and say, no, you know, you, you can't treat women as the possession of a man. You can't cut little girls. You can't do all sorts of things that might have been going on in the, the place in which they came. If that's offensive, well, then so be it. Uh, but what we do know about censoring religious speech and trying to protect religious speech is that the countries in which religious speech has the most protection in law are also the countries in which we have the least freedoms and people are the most religiously persecuted. So it does not give anybody religious freedom to censor religious speech. Absolutely. And this is uh, also uh, a result of this, the distrust of the ruling elites. Uh, they actually think that people need to be controlled because Australians are inherently bigoted and, uh, and, and racist or or xenophobic or, or Islamophobic, whatever they try to create and medicalize Australian people. It's really, really a declaration of war on the people of this country because it's silencing and oppressing uh, honest debate. And of course, this is in itself an instrument of intolerance and bigotry. You see that some of these laws, they're never, they're never used by people uh, they would never be used by people who are tolerant because I uh, have to face criticism of my ideas and I don't go so honest because I believe it's their right to discuss matters with me in a democratic environment. We do not solve matters and disputes by bringing them to the courts. The courts cannot uh, uh, become uh, um, deciders on issues such as of religion, for instance, because otherwise it's like expecting judges to have developed a theological training. So what's happening is that the addition of the religious element that discrimination laws is, is, is the, going the wrong way. Uh, rather than repealing all these, uh, these laws that we have uh, 
over the years created that dramatically uh, limit our right to speech, to produce statements, uh, we are actually adding another group to be protected. I do not want groups, more groups to be protected. I actually think and believe in the idea of equality before the law. And I think that the best way to go, rather than creating or adding more junk to the garbage bin of anti-discrimination laws, we should actually throw everything out and burn this thing. I tell you that the best way to go is undoubtedly restore by restoring our freedoms that have been over the decades being stolen by us, from us, by the elites. We should repeal all these anti-discrimination laws and give us confidence to speak freely. The, the elites have a distrust on us. They don't trust us. And that's why they create these laws. Well, I hope you allow me the indulgence. One of the earliest articles I wrote when I first got into the political thing was in defence of free speech and against censorship. And in it, I made two quotes. I'll read them to you one at a time and you can reply to them because I'd be interested to hear what you think. Um, I, first of all, I said, contrary to all logic, it turns out that the best way to keep the peace is to have the incontrovertible freedom to insult each other. Yes, I, I yeah. agree entirely. I agree entirely. I think that the idea is that when we are in a political debate, we tend to be passionate. And we can understand, because I am a bit of a political animal as well. I like to talk about politics, and you get excited about this. When I came to this country, uh, someone told me there are two things Australians don't like to talk about. One is religion, another is politics. And I thought that uh, then I would be in big trouble then, because that, these are the, my two favorite topics. Uh, we have to understand that... Um, in, the parliamentarians should know it better because if you watch the parliamentary proceedings, they can behave in a even appalling fashion. They can be not they can be quite rude towards one another, but they feel that they are superior individuals because they have parliamentary privileges. If they are our representatives, if they they were elected by, by us, ultimately they work for the people. Ultimately, these politicians are employees. I have other things, much better things to do than to be creating law or drafting legislation. That's why we have representative government. That's why the people vote for these people so that they can do their jobs and represent their constituency. The constituency, namely the citizens of this country, the people of this country, should have the same speech rights than the employees that they chose to work for them in parliament. Now we have the employees rebelling against the employees by basically the, the, those who are elected to represent us, treating us like garbage, like second-rate citizens, like inferior citizens, because they think that there is one rule for them and another for us. That's not how it should work in a democracy. That's not what the rule of law dictates. The rule of, of, rule of law dictates that everybody should be treated equally before the law. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other claim that I make in this, which I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are, and it was related to censored material. So this is where the government goes in and completely censors what they claim to be hateful or dangerous materials so that nobody can ever read it. So mm. in relation to that, I said, the danger of censored material by a government means that the authorities are free to make any claims they like about the material that nobody can read 
and nobody can check. And from these claims, government can draft laws that can be just without anybody able to check or question these laws. And that's what we saw with the Christchurch massacre. We saw um, a piece of documentation from a lunatic, which if we'd been able to read it, we would have seen straight away that it was, it was dismissible. You could just throw it out of hand. But they used its contents, which they forbid anybody from reading by law and under threat, as an excuse to draft new laws to restrict the freedoms of people who had committed no crimes. So my problem is with this indulgence of censoring material. I mean, we don't censor Mein Kampf. We don't censor any of the events leading up to World War One or World War Two. You can read the Communist Manifesto because you have to understand what these systems are if you ever want to prevent them or fight them in the future. This is so true. And I can give you an example of my own teaching. I used to get the students to read um, Das Kapital, that terrible, dreadful book written what by Karl Marx. What a horrible, that is. What a horrible, yeah, it, boring it's a book. I hate the way Marx is right. I, I, I had to apologize to the students for violating their rights to have to read the piece of crap. But that is actually very important because then you, you, it's, it's their own words. And if I'm confident about my worldview and my uh, classical liberal values, I'm not afraid of being reading these books and, the, and explaining the flaws with the books. What the left does, because out of uh, probably of arrogance, and intolerance is that they are trying to shut up the debate for perhaps one basic reason is that they can't counter-argue properly. They might have actually have a level lack of confidence in their ideas and that leads them to take this sort of approach. Of course they have to have this sort of um, lack of confidence because every time I have to engage with the leftists I realized that the postmodern worldview has brought about a co mental confusion, a state of mental confusion. I remember that when I was at Monash as an academic, there was a radical feminist who claimed to be a radical multiculturalism at the same time. And she believed that all cultures are the same. There's no problem whatsoever in celebrating the different aspects of, uh, of these uh, particular cultures. And then I had to say, that in some cultures, uh, women suffer uh, dramatical, dramatically by the same violation of human rights. And you think about instances of uh, genital mutilation and all the terrible uh, things that can be impinged on these women. And I was telling her that how can you actually be so radical uh, in terms of your cultural relativism and at the same time think that you can necessarily be protecting women's rights? So I started to see that there is so many flaws in the uh, worldview, and perhaps uh, they would justify this by saying that after all, everything is relative. So the person is certainly suffering from mental confusion in the process. Well, it goes without saying, or it should go without saying, that it is not exposure to ideas that is dangerous. It is leaving those ideas unquestioned. And the kids yeah. today are not socialists because they understand socialism. Most of them couldn't tell you what it is. They couldn't give you any of its history or even pinpoint the fundamental reasons why it fails. It's simply because it is taught to them in a vacuum without ever being questioned. And it's that questioning that we have to be really careful of because it's not happening in universities. People are so, they're shuttering topics away so they can never be touched, never be talked about. And so we are repeating 
so many of our worst mistakes over and over again because of the climate of censorship mixed with this dogmatic Marxist uprising that we are seeing. Uh, yeah, and we have to put the blame on this and, and even the federal government when they set up that uh, or created that terrible national curriculum. And so uh, I was invited by um, school teachers to speak at an event where the Minister of Education in those days was that uh, Simon Birmingham. He was a terrible Minister of Education. But after my talk, it was a talk to say that the national curriculum for education was not really a normal curriculum. It was a propaganda, indoctrination, a machine. It was used by, uh, the, um, uh, first of all, drafted by a communist called uh, Stuart McIntyre. He was a member of the Communist Party a couple of years ago. And the, the curriculum is completely silent on uh, the um, atrocities of the communist regimes. There's nothing about what happened in the Soviet Union, nothing about what happened in China, where millions and millions of people died, as you know. Uh, there are a couple of French academics who were former communists themselves who wrote that uh, fascinating book, but also very um, depressing to read, but very important to read, uh, The Black Book of Communism, claiming that um, more than 100 pe people, uh, more than 100 million people died as a result of the communist regimes and the implementation of their uh, genocidal policies in the 20th century. Nothing of this is addressed in this curriculum. Uh, quite to the contrary, there is a celebration of uh, socialist ideas and even a promotion of this totalitarian uh, system, ideology called radical Islam, by saying that all the invasions of the Islamic uh, uh, empires over the centuries were peaceful and basically just occupied lands as if they hadn't done any or committed any act of genocide in the process. So it's a total brainwashing. And the year 12 ends up teaching these kids to embrace the environmental agenda. Perhaps like rather than reading and, and, and knowing history properly, they are graduated into hugging trees and trying to save the whales. And probably the only bad people in the world now left are the Japanese because they uh, have whales as their barbecue. And that tells me that they probably are hated by the students after knowing that the whales need such a protection. Hi, I'm a survivor of that terrible education system that tries to indoctrinate you. What most people don't realise is that postmodernism was invented by the French intellectuals when they tried to resell Marxism, but they knew Marxism was so badly tainted they had to give it a new name. And when it reached us in school, they taught us postmodernism as if it was purely an artistic movement. And then it sort of started branching into our uh, English classes where they told us there was no real meaning in things, that the author's intent doesn't matter, and they started to break down any kind of foundation of literary history and literary works with this Marxist ideal. And so I skimmed through before it really got going, but you can see there they were trying to destroy the fabric of Western culture and the ideas of culture so that they could then replace them with whatever nonsense they wanted, knowing that kids would not have the ability to question nonsense when they saw it. Um, but we're running out of time, so I've got just one more thing to ask you before I get to our question at the end. Um, and when I was preparing for this meeting with you, I, I went to go and dig up my Jonathan Sumption books, who I'm sure you know, but unfortunately they're all floating down the river, so I don't have them. But I think the gist of what he was saying 
um, was that essentially law has been overreaching itself into the private lives of individuals lately. And not just the laws that Parliament comes up with, but also the laws that are, are written by international bureaucracies that nobody elects, so the United Nations, the European Union, depending on where you are, and a whole stack of treaties, which in total have combined to be uh, a swamp of invasive laws. So my question is, is Australia in danger of drowning in bad law? Mm, absolutely, it is. And uh, perhaps rather than thinking about creating more laws, it's time for us to give to the people the rights and freedoms that we have uh, uh, lost. As a result of excessive legislation, one of the things that the common law used to have and to distinguish itself from the civil law system is that judges would make decisions based on common sense. That's why the name of the system is called common law. But it is connected with the law of reason and it's connected with a tradition where the rights are not state-given, they're inalienable of the individual. Sir Samuel Grift, the first chief justice of this court, said that if the law is not for the advancement of the fundamental rights to life, liberty, and property, it's not law properly so-called. Our tradition says that no law can violate a fundamental rights. So you have, as a result, a lawful right to resist tyranny. That is something that is acknowledged constitutionally by our legal system, and uh, any government that violates its fundamental rights poses it itself in a state of war, and you have the right to use all means, but if necessary, by all means, to restore these rights that have been taken away. Well, thank you very much for that. And our final question of the day on Curtain Call is one that we ask all of our guests, and that is, if you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and, most importantly, why? Look, in many ways, uh, this uh, individual even changed my religion, even my faith. I used to be a Roman Catholic, but after reading his writings, I became a Protestant. But I can tell you that nobody has been more influential as the father of classical liberalism and the man that I would love to one day meet in heaven because I know he is there and I hope that I will have the right to go as well to the same place. Then I would love to have a, a dinner and I think I will have one day, certainly not in this dimension, a dinner with John Locke. John Locke is the key now because the American Declaration of Independence is, based, is a paraphrase of Locke. We, I don't want to accuse Thomas Jefferson of plagiarizing Locke because that would be inappropriate. As myself, I can say, my work is entirely inspired by John Locke. And John Locke also justified the glorious revolution that ultimately brought about the idea of parliamentary government. He would be appalled by what's happening in his native England and would certainly be appalled by what's happening in this country. We need to recover our uh, legacy that we have, you know, inherited from the likes of John Locke that taught us to have a sense of appreciate and appreciation for freedom and the right that we have to use these uh, elements to protect our families, protect our dignity and ultimately to protect our country from tyranny. 
Oh, thank you so much. You are a wealth of knowledge and it was a true pleasure to have you here today on Curtain Call. Well, look, it was such a privilege because I absolutely adore your work. You're doing a great job. And thank you so much, I would say, even for the honor and privilege of being talking to you now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.